Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore. This show explores the impacts of commonly used phrases on our world's diverse cultures and how people's use of them shape our perspective on the societies that we live within. This week, I've been thinking how wonderful it is that I am telepathic. I can actually write down what you're about to say and show it to you, even if I don't know you very well. Did you believe that? You shouldn't have. What I was trying to do there was to pull the wool over your eyes, which is this week's metaphor. I'll be joined this week by author Dion Martin, who has recently published her first novel. It's called The Wool Over Their Eyes. Her unique look on life and understanding of stories is definitely one to look out for. But first, let's investigate the intriguing expression. Where does the expression to pull the wool over someone's eyes come from? I always imagined holding cotton wool over someone's eyes so they can't see what's going on. I'm not sure why. It just sounds rather odd saying it out loud. And it's very far from the actual origin. Back in the 17th century, wealthy Brits would wear large woolen wigs to demonstrate their opulence and status. Ruffians saw these wigs as an opportunity to make some money via unlawful means. They would pull the wigs over their victims' eyes and steal coins, watches and anything else from their pockets. However, it wasn't just the upper class who had the wool pulled over their eyes. Way back in medieval times, a similar tactic was used on the everyday folk who made the mistake of wearing a woolen hood. One hand would pull the hood over their eyes, whilst the other cut the purse strings, leaving the victim penniless with no idea as to who the thief was. This must have been a rather common occurrence, as it soon became an expression and is, of course, still used today. Let's hear more about Dion Martin's book, The Wool Over Their Eyes. Dion, she was born and raised in New Orleans, where she spent much of her childhood and teen years reading. Her debut novel, it's the story of a biracial woman who has been the family secret that was meant to go to her father's grave. Her life changes when she first learns about her biological father. Dion now lives in Dallas with her two daughters and enjoys running, cooking, performing arts and attempting DIY projects. And I suppose that's the place where she starts thinking about her next book. Dion, how has our metaphor pulled the wool over someone's eyes link to your life? Yes, yeah, so when I think about pulling the wool over someone's eyes, I think there are two different ways to, to look at that. And one is, you know, someone tricking or deceiving you. That's one way to look at it. But the other side of that is sort of hiding the truth from someone. It's lying through omission. And I think people do this often and all the time. I've certainly had it happen to me, especially in personal relationships. I think that there are different kinds of people in terms of how we respond to this. I think some people would prefer to sort of have these blinders on and they don't really want to know the truth. Like it's better to be sort of in this blissful ignorance. But then there are other people who maybe feel suspicious or you suspect someone is not revealing the full truth to you. And so you do some digging to uncover this truth. Uh, and so for me, I have sort of always had the mindset of, of being a little bit more suspicious and doing that additional digging. 
And so for two of the characters in, in the book, they deal with this um, in, in two different ways. One is, is the wife who is betrayed by her husband. Um, he has kept a, a child that he fathered, you know, a secret from her for all these years during their marriage. And she's had some inclination, but never really did any digging to find out if that was the case. And then with another character, with Natalia, she also deals with this throughout her life, but more specifically in one of the relationships uh, in the book where someone she's dating is, is not fully uh, truthful uh, or honest with her. And so I think it's just a question of, you know, do you want to do the digging, digging and find out this truth? Uh, but it, it's, for me, it's more about lying through omission and, and what that does to a person and to relationships. So tell us about your book, The Wall Over Their Eyes, and also tell us which was the hardest part to write. Yeah, so it's about a biracial woman who finds out her biological father. Uh, he's an Italian man who she's never met. She finds out he is dying from cancer, and she has to decide if she wants to make herself known to him and his family, or if she will remain the family secret. And so... Her mother is black. He is, you know, obviously Italian. Um, and so there's also this dynamic of race and what could happen potentially if this white family finds out they have this black family member that they knew nothing about. Um, so that's kind of the main, uh, what the book is about mainly, uh, but there's also a love story. And so she has an ex that kind of resurfaces, but then she also meets this doctor who cared for her father. Uh, and so there's also a love story uh, included. Um, I think the struggle in terms of writing for me, it's very much staying motivated, uh, and staying disciplined. Um, I have two daughters. I work full time, like very full time. I work a lot <laughs> for my job. Um, and then, you know, when you put in, you know, factor in trying to have like a Sunday service, um, a virtual service on Sundays and trying to work out and go to the grocery store, you're definitely, um, there's not a whole lot of time. I think we all struggle with this in our lives and we shouldn't use it as an excuse. Um, for me, it was just very much trying to be disciplined and stick to a writing schedule. Uh, that was the most difficult uh, for me. And that's why it took me like over six years to write the book. And why did you write the book? Where did it come from? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very loosely based on my real life. And so I, my real father um, was Italian. I grew up not knowing him. Uh, and so for me, I, I drew from some personal experiences. Um, and those were frankly the scenes or the passages that were more difficult to write was when I was thinking personally how it felt to not have grown up with my biological father. Um, and really to this day, his family still doesn't know that I exist. So I sort of let my imagination run wild and thought about, well, what could have been? Uh, sometimes I look back and think if I had been braver, what would I have done differently? Um, and so I think personally too, to go back to the metaphor, I, I think lived with wool over my eyes for a very long time. Uh, and some of that, you know, frankly came from how I was brought up and just sort of letting other people tell me how to live my life and what I should and shouldn't do. I have to be honest and say that I have not completely read your book and it, that's actually on purpose because I had every intention to read it all. I had enough time to. I started reading it 
And then I thought, uh, I'm doing this very quickly because I haven't got much time to to read it and get questions across and so on and so forth. Uh, but then I just stopped because I thought, I actually don't want to rush this. I saw a pattern there and I thought, I'd like to speak to you and talk to you about that first. And then I will continue reading. Now, what came to my mind, and as I skimmed through up until maybe page uh, 80, when I decided, oh no, I'm not going to read anymore. And I, the theme that was coming to me, and I wanted to ask you, is the dynamics between such a complicated relationship between Natalia, her mother, her, the doctor, the friend. It just seemed that Natalia was always trying to do what was best for others. Even though she listened to how she felt, she always wanted to do the right thing. But the one word that came to my mind was regret. And how did you use the character Natalia as a symbol of your regret? And that's me asking that question without reading the rest of the book. I think that's a great point. Um, and it's interesting that you picked up on that. For me, Natalia was far braver than I had and have been in my own life. And, and to your point, I will say that I have lived a lot of my life sort of, you know, by the book, like, what should I do? You know, honoring your mother and father. I grew up in a very religious, very conservative home. Um, very scripture based and you know we very much believe that if we you know disobeyed or if we were disrespectful our lives would be cut short i mean these these scriptures were really drilled into us and so i was just very much by the book i'm going to do what my mother says and, and that's just how i live my life and she didn't she never wanted me to reach out to my biological father because she promised him that she wouldn't disrupt their lives and that i wouldn't disrupt their lives and so it was very much about making Natalia braver than I was and have been in my own life. Now, and in hindsight, I wish I had done some things differently. If I, in hindsight, right, we get, as we get older, we get wiser, we get braver, and we care less about what people think. But when we're younger, it's different. I didn't really want to ask this question because I haven't got to the end of the book and I want to persuade people to read it because it's, it is such a good, leisurely, uh, simple but not simplistic read and I really want to know but I don't want to know but I'm going to ask um I mentioned regret earlier and you just mentioned it again in your own way did the end of the book end the way you wished it had ended for you no okay don't say any more <laughs> <laughs> I'm being very selfish here, aren't I? <laughs> but I hope at the same time I'm, you know, encouraging people that, yes, you know, I've got to read this because it sounds really interesting because this is, yes, partly, you know, your story, but it is the story for many people, I'm sure. I have similar stories in, in that, you know, when my children's father passed, I had to keep certain things in that and it was nothing as large as as yours but you know things like should they need to know about their father when they come when you know after he's died and they come to me and say mom 
did dad do this? Did dad do that? Was he really like that? And he tried to protect them, you know, to to a certain stage. And uh, but I think it was must have been very difficult for you and for the character, as I can see very clearly, to balance what is comfortable and what is right. Um, do you ever in the book? Does it ever say what Natalia's father uh, felt or whether Natalia's father um, spoke to anyone about her, about her existence? It does. It does. Okay. Oh, I really love the fact that you're giving me short answers. <laughs> well, there is a person in the novel, there's another character who does know about her existence. And he's pretty much the antagonist, if that tells you anything. Yes, I think I know who it is because he's introduced more or less. Okay. Yes, I know who it is. Okay, then. After having studied a master's in journalism, has it helped your writing or do you simply want to become a journalist? So that's a great question. I originally, when I went off to college, um, I'm originally from New Orleans and like I said, grew up in a very conservative, very strict home. I wanted to get away. And so at 17, I left uh, to go away to school in Minnesota, of all places, because I, have a, I had a, an academic scholarship. My last two years of school there, I wrote for the student newspaper. And I was already majoring in English because it was the one subject that just came more naturally for me. I, I read a lot uh, because I didn't have a lot of freedom growing up. And so I think that is what allowed me to become a better writer. Um, I became interested in journalism while writing for the student newspaper. And so I decided to pursue a master's degree in journalism uh, at UT in Austin. Uh, while I was there, um, really what led me there was, I was very disturbed and keep in mind, this is before social media. I was very disturbed at how African-Americans were portrayed in the media specifically in newspaper, as well as on the news, right? And so my goal, and at the time also, there were very few Black people in decision-making roles, like editors and, you know, who's selecting the images that we see, who's choosing the quotes, and, and how are they framing these stories about Black people? So my goal was to become a journalist, write for a newspaper, and change how African Americans are portrayed in the media. And that's what my thesis was on. In my last year at UT, I ended up with an internship at Dell Computers in corporate communications. And so it's kind of, I read your bio, it's kind of like you, it's like, well, you need money, you have to survive for financially. Journalism was a tough field, even back then. I would have had to have lived in a very small town again um, in order to, to pursue that career path. And so I, I ended up going the corporate communications route uh, after that internship. But that was originally what led me into journalism. And now that you've written your book, does that make you feel that you want to perhaps continue in, along that line? And also, what have the reviews been so far? So in answer to the first question, as far as continuing, um, my dream had always been to, to write a novel. Um, and I put it off and put it off and, and I, you know, I was married, my children were younger, I went through a divorce. And I looked up and I was, I was in my 40s and I said, you know, I, I can't keep putting this off. And 
I don't want to, back to your point about having regrets, I didn't want to have regrets. And I thought, if I don't do anything else, I have to write this novel. Um, so six years ago, I started working on it. Um, and, and that had just been the focus. Like, I just was determined to not have any regrets. I do want to write a second novel. Um, I've started on an outline for it, and I've got some ideas and some characters kind of floating around in my head. Um, so it will be, you know, trying to fit that in going forward while also working full time. I think realistically, Delia, the soonest that I could really focus on just a writing career would be in retirement because I have to work. <laughs> so it will, it will very much continue to be sort of this part-time job that I have while working full-time to make a living. Mm -hmm. But once I'm in retirement, hopefully. <laughs> Did your, your daughters know about your past before you wrote the book? Yes. Yes, they, they do. Uh, and it's an interesting... It, 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 it had always been an, an interesting discussion um, with them uh, because they've never had an opportunity to meet any of their grand fathers on any side of the family. Um, and so that has just always been this missing piece for them too. And, and sometimes I think, oh, it's, it's so unfortunate that I didn't know him and they will never meet him uh, because he has, you know, since passed away. Um, but they, they do know and they are aware uh, about it. But aren't they going to have the same issues that you are in terms of protecting other people's wishes? other people who perhaps when they get older would have passed on? I hope not. I have, I have been drilling into them, you know, pursue your passions, like do what makes you happy, right? It, it's, it's not about the money. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, we all have to survive, but I've been very much, you know, focused on making sure they understand they need to be independent young woman, young women and not, to rely on anyone else. And that's something my own mother drilled into me uh, because she was dependent on my stepdad growing up and she didn't want that for her daughters. And so it's very much focused. I'm, I'm very much focused on making sure they can be independent, self-sufficient, happy, living their lives for themselves and not for other people. I, I'm not going to be that parent that's telling them this is what you need to do with your life or this is how you need to live, or this is what you need to believe. I very much want them to make those decisions for themselves. Okay. And to continue the question that you were going to answer about the book reviews? Yes, yes. So right now, I think most people are in the same boat as you. They're still reading it. Um, my editor has written a really strong, uh, positive review about it, and a couple of other of my friends are planning to. But I, and I have another independent reviewer that um, is, is very positive, and that one will post soon. So I was glad to see that because, you know, you expect your friends to give you glowing reviews, but it's another thing when you have other people um, reviewing and critiquing your work. And so I am curious to, to hear what other people have to say. Um, I'm prepared because I do know, um, you know, just for example, I've read so many books, like I said, I, I read a lot, I still read a lot, and I've had so many novels that I have just thoroughly loved and enjoyed, wished I could have written them my, myself, and then I go and look at the reviews, and there are people who don't like these books, and I'm just shocked. Yeah. <laughs> so you do have to take it with a grain of salt, right? It's, it's not for everybody, and it's a very subjective um, process, so I, I do have to take that into consideration. But so far, the reviews have been great. Yeah. <laughs> 
And it's not just about the story, is it? It's also about how it's written. You know, we can all we can all tell a story, but the way that it's put on paper is a completely different thing. And you mentioned about you love reading. Who is your best writer of all time? So hands down, it is Toni Morrison. I think everyone, anyone who's read her, I mean, she was just impressive. I was in seventh grade when I read The Bluest Eye, and it was the most powerful story I've ever read. Like read, I, I it stayed with me for so long. Like even now to think about Pecola and what she went through, I just thought if a story can do that to a person, this is this is where I want to be. Um, and I read everything she wrote after that. Well. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and my listeners. I wish you the best with all your, your writings and um, please keep in touch. But before I go, tell um, listeners how they can get in touch uh, with you, all your publishers to purchase your book. Of course. So the book is titled The Wool Over Their Eyes and it's currently available on Amazon.com. Uh, I also have a website, and so it's my first name, Dash Martin. So D-I-O-N-E Dash Martin at, dot com. Sorry. So Dion Dash Martin dot com is my website. Um, and so I've been posting um, just any media coverage that I get. There's a news release, my bio, et cetera. And so uh, that's just that's another way to, to keep in touch. And my social channels um, and handles are also on that site. Well, thank you so much for uh, telling us about your book and um, all the best with your other books and with the continuation of being the person that you would like to be without restrictions for the rest of your life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wasn't that just fascinating? I tell you, I learned so much from these interviews. A big thank you to Dion Martin for joining us today. And I hope she provided you all with a new outlook on telling stories. Did it bring you back to a time when someone tried to pull the wool over your eyes? Or was it you doing the wool pulling? Now let's find out about the history behind the metaphor, pull the wool over someone's eyes. Although financial gain is one of the most typical reasons for duping someone, it's not always the motive. During World War II, the Allied forces came up with Operation Mince Meat, where they dressed the body of a dead homeless man in a Navy officer's uniform and planted fake plans to invade Greece on the corpse. This cunning plan fooled the Nazis and allowed the Allies to capture their actual target, Sicily. The plan worked brilliantly and, as you may have guessed, helped the Allies win the war. But you may not have known that one of the great minds behind this ruse went on to write many more stories of deceit and secrecy. I'm talking about Ian Fleming, the creator of the one and only James Bond Agent 007. If you are a fan of the films, car chases and gunfights will come to mind, but Fleming's books veered towards lies, double-crossing and blackmail for a far subtler story of spycraft. For any of you curious as to how Fleming chose the name James Bond, here is an interview with the man himself. 
Humphreys? Well, it isn't only the hero. I mean, I generally pick up names just driving through the countryside, through villages and so on. You'll see an interesting name uh, over a tobacconist or chemist or something of that sort in any country in the world. But um, when I started to write these books in 1952, I wanted to find um, a name which wouldn't have any of this a romantic uh, overtones like Peregrine Carruthers or whatever it might be. I wanted a really flat, quiet name. And one of my Bibles out here is uh, James Bond's Birds of the West Indies, which is a very famous uh, ornithological book indeed. And I thought, well, now, James Bond, now, that's a pretty quiet name. And so I simply stole it and used it. Another name you may be familiar with is Charles Ponzi, or at least you've heard of a Ponzi scheme. In the 1920s, Charles Ponzi came up with an idea to make some serious money from investors. There have been many famous instances of pulling the wool over someone's eyes throughout history. I'm sure you all know about the crafty Greeks and their Trojan horse. This is a gift. We should take it to the temple of Poseidon. I think we should burn it. Burn it, my prince. It's a gift to the gods. Father, burn it. If only the king of Troy had listened to his son, maybe he'd still have a city to stand in. Like a Trojan horse defeating a notation, there is one day of the year where it's socially acceptable to pull the wool over someone's eyes. And that day, of course, is the 1st of April, which is also known as April Fool's Day. Every year you can expect pranks, jokes and antics galore, but why? It's not just humans that lie and cheat for their own gain. Just next door, in an even smaller nest, the female reed warbler incubates its four eggs. One of the brood is starting to hatch. However, it is not the young reed warbler. Two weeks ago, a female cuckoo, unseen by the reed warbler, dropped her egg into this nest. Now the young cuckoo hatches. As the first of the brood, the reed warbler did not notice the trick and now feeds the young as if it were its own. The young cuckoo needs to throw the other eggs out of the nest. If it doesn't do this, then the parents will not be able to feed all the nestlings. Fool the mother into raising them. Once it grows up, it'll lay eggs in another bird's nest and repeat the vicious circle. And I thought people could be evil. One of my favourite examples of trickery was in April 1817 when a young servant girl managed to fool an entire town into believing she was an exotic princess. It all happened in the small English town of Almondsbury. A humble cobbler was going about his business when he comes across a young woman dressed rather eccentrically in the middle of the road. She wore a black turban and a red and black shawl and spoke in an incomprehensible foreign tongue. The cobbler guided her into town where kind-hearted locals put her up for the night. No one had any idea what she was saying or where she came from 
until a Portuguese sailor named Manuel Inesco passed through the small town after making port in Bristol. All the town was talking about the strange girl and he just had to see for himself and as luck would have it he spoke her language. He was very happy to translate her tale for the curious townsfolk and revealed that the eccentrically dressed woman was no other than the princess caribou from the island of javasu in the indian ocean apparently the princess had been abducted by pirates but managed to jump off the ship into the bristol channel and washed up in almondsbury the townsfolk lapped up her story and treated her like royalty in turn the princess put on quite a show she used a bow and arrow carried a gong on her back and wore flowers and feathers in her hair all of which inspired more intrigue among the unadventurous townspeople. She gave fencing demonstrations to the town, using a blade stained at the tip with vegetable poison. She even, quite scandalously, swam naked in a lake. Each night before she went to sleep, she would pray to her god, whom she called Alatala, often from the top of a tree. Word quickly spread of the intriguing princess. She entertained audiences of foreigners, linguists, painters physiognomists, craniologists, and vagabonds, and unraveled just as quickly as it was spun. In June, Princess Caribou made the local papers, where she was spotted by Mrs. Neal, who owned a lodging house in Bristol. Neil recognized the princess as none other than Mary Baker, a lodger who would often dance in a black turban and speak an invented language. Baker did not hail from Javasu, as there is no Javasu, but rather a town called Witheridge, where she had been working as a servant. The paper seized upon Baker's story after her exposure, and even ran poetry and ballads composed in her honour. The final verse of one such ode, published in the Bristol Mercury in 1817, reads, I admired thy caribou, such self-possession at command, the by-play greateth, illusion grand. In truth, t'was everything but true. By the end of that month, the town of Almondsbury shipped Baker across the Atlantic to Philadelphia, where Americans were all too happy to see her perform the part of the fake foreign princess. Baker returned to England in 1824 to continue her acting career to less successful results. I can't blame Mary Baker for wanting to be someone else and absolutely applaud her creativity for inventing an entire language. Living in the 17th century when being different was frowned upon, especially for a woman. It must have been so freeing to dress eccentrically and fire a bow and arrow or climb a tree. So although it wasn't right to pull the wool over the entire town's eyes, I can certainly understand the motive. That has to be one of my favorite stories to date. The idea of one girl managing to pull the wool over a whole entire town is absolutely incredible. Like I always say, you never know what you learn on this show. From ancient mugging techniques to the invasion of Troy, this episode has been something for the ages and it's been fantastic to have you all join me on the ride. A huge thank you to the amazing Dion Martin for joining me as my guest this week. It's always incredible to have guests like her on my show as their unique outlook is just fantastic. Pulling the wool over someone's eyes isn't always necessarily a bad thing. What about the times when you were pleasantly surprised, when something just rocked your world, but first of all, they made you believe it wasn't going to happen? 
Don't forget, if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at msdelia at deliadelore.com and we'd love you to share the show with your friends or leave a review on colorful.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify and all major streaming platforms. We depend on you to help us grow so that we can produce the best content for you to enjoy. Join us for another metaphor next week. I'm Delia Delore. Keep safe.